This is day 96 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be reading Job chapters 40 through 42, and then the first two Psalms. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for teaching us how to be holy and how to be righteous. And Lord, that you may challenge us in our spirit to seek these things. Seeking the things above rather than the things below. Seeking your perfect will rather than ours. Lord, that you have a better way for us and we need to go that way. Because you know better and you're much wiser than we are. And you want to do good to us. And we don't know how to be good to ourselves. And Lord, we, we need you to show us the way. Please guide us into your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice, and I will add nothing more. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity, and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud to make them low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together, bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold now, behemoth which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down, in the covert of the reeds and the marsh, and the willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs can anyone pierce his nose? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose, or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you, or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, 
or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he who, that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs, or his mighty strength, or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales are his pride, shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another, they clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. In his neck lodges strength, and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear. Because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him, he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes.
It came about after the Lord had spoken those words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite went, and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money, and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hepuk. In all the land no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, 
I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. I told you this one was going to be a good one. It was short, but man, is there so much in here to look at. Here we still see the Lord confronting Job exactly like he wanted, and Job is strongly regretting what he did. And the Lord keeps telling him, hey, you know, will the fault finder contend with me? Here I am. You want to fight with me? I'm right here. Say what you're going to say. And Job is like, I am so insignificant. What can I tell you? I am so sorry. I am so wrong. So but God's like, okay, well, gird up your loins like a man. I'm not done with you yet. And then so now he compares himself and his creation to these other two creatures that he created, Behemoth and Leviathan. Now, this is where some people go um, into different directions as to what these creatures might be. So, let me tell you what it's not, in my opinion. Because, I mean, we really don't know, right? But I think it's very clear what they are, in my estimation. Yet, the notes on my commentary describe them as follows. Based on what we read, I want you to see if you agree with this assessment or not. So we see that Behemoth eats grass like an ox. He has powerful loins and powerful belly. He bends his tail like a cedar, which I imagine is a large swinging tail. You know, the sinews of his thighs are knit together. You know, I can imagine that sounds like armor or scales. You know, something hard, hard underbelly, right? His bones are tubes of bronze and limbs are like bars of iron. So he's very strong, right? What do you think that is? Commentary says it's a hippopotamus. Are you kidding me? That is not a hippopotamus at all. I mean, I don't know where they're getting that from, but to me, I think the behemoth is a dinosaur. And not only that, and the only other reason I say that is because at the end of chapter 41, he said that he looks on everything that is high, and he is king over all the sons of pride. And so the sons of pride, I imagine, is a fancy name that God is giving for dinosaurs. And before contemporary scientific language was used, the word dinosaur did not exist until the last maybe 100, 150 years. Before that, all creatures of this kind were called 
dragons. Dinosaurs used to be called dragons. And so when we think of dragons, we think of mythological creatures, right? But are they so mythological? Because to me, that sounds like a four-legged dinosaur right here. Something like a, a stegosaurus or like an ankylosaurus or something like that where it's armored, it walks on four legs, it's not afraid of things, it has a tail that swings and uh, can hurt things. So I think of those, and that's what I think a behemoth is. And then when you see the description of Leviathan, my commentary says it's a crocodile. And maybe, this one's a bit of a stretch. I can see a giant crocodile being this description. But did you see some of the other things it's described as? People try to hunt for it. And their harpoons and their spears are useless, right? Thick, armored scales, which I can maybe see a crocodile can be described that way. He's got t teeth that are very that are scary. You know, his armor is so close together, no air can come between them. And then you see this one, very odd. His sneezes flash forth light. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth burn, bur go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils, smoke goes forth. He, his breath kindles coals. And a flame goes forth from his mouth. This creature breathes fire. I mean, how? there's no other thing this could be. This is a fire-breathing dragon. And these are real this is the Bible, okay? Everything in the Bible is real, and everything in the Bible is to be taken as truth. So this is indeed a dinosaur that can breathe fire. So in his neck lodges strength, the folds of his flesh are joined together, his heart is as hard as stone, you know, the sword that reaches him does not do anything, spears don't hurt him, iron is like straw to him, Bronze is like rotting wood to him. Arrows do nothing to him. That's not a crocodile. You can shoot a crocodile and it'll, it'll get hurt. But this is not a crocodile. To me, and also there are other biblical scholars that tend to sway this way, but this to me sounds like a Tyrannosaurus Rex or something like it. Because in fact, there is in the head of a Tyrannosaurus Rex there is a chamber, a cavity, in their skull that they're not sure what it's for. And I think that's the, where the fire-breathing mechanism of the T-Rex comes from. So how interesting would that be that the T-Rex was actually a fire-breathing dragon? That is mind-blowing when you think about it. The way it's mentioned here just seems like it could be because you know nothing on earth is like him one made without fear he looks on everything that is high he is king over the sons of pride t-rex is called the king of dinosaurs right how better fitting of a description could it be for a t-rex so i personally think it's a t-rex but it's fascinating when you try to figure out what these things are that 
God made these creatures, and at one point we did live among them. And it wasn't that long ago. So why do we see fossils? Okay, so the fossilization process is a big scam. The carbon dating system is a big lie. And many people have already disproved it at this point. So it shouldn't be a surprise for me to say this. But you need perfect conditions in order to create a fossil. And if we follow the timeline of the Bible, being no more than, say, 6,000 years, then that means the process of fossilization is much more rapid than we believe. And what does it take to become a fossil? Well, it needs perfect conditions of water and uh, a dying creature, as well as, you know, rapid burying under earth. That sounds like all the stuff during the flood, and that's where fossils came from, in my opinion. All the fossils came from things that died during the great flood of Noah's day. It makes sense to me. It doesn't take millions of years. So after all that, Job was greatly humbled, and he was put in his place. He knew he was, and he admits that he spoke out of ignorance, and he spoke out of boastful pride, and he repented and recognized that he was totally wrong in challenging God. And then we see the Lord angry with his friends for not representing him correctly, but also not supporting Job properly. But he gives them an opportunity to be forgiven. And I thought it was interesting that because he asked for seven bulls and seven rams, and that give them to Job, and my servant Job will pray for you. Very interesting. I will accept him so that I may not do to you according to your folly, because you have not spoken to me what is right. What's interesting is you don't see any mention here about Elihu, first of all. Where is he in all of this? He was not included, most likely because he was more correct than the other men. But no mention of him at all at this point. Job was righteous and was able to pray for them to be saved. That's interesting. Is that something that we do? Can we pray for somebody's salvation? Absolutely we should be, and that should be a daily thing. We should be praying every single day for those that are lost to be saved. And so in this particular case, it's not necessarily that Job is a priest. But at this day, this was before the law of Moses. And so there were the prophets of their homes as well as the priests of their homes. That's why we saw that at the very beginning as well of Job's story, that he was sacrificing on behalf of his children, that perhaps they had sinned, that they may be forgiven of their sins. So he's being their prophet and their priest of their of his home. And that's what we are today as well as men. We are prophets and priests of our homes and providers and protectors. So we see that the Lord forgave his three friends, and he accepted Job's sacrifice, and the Lord restored him double of everything that he had before. Looks like he, we don't know if it's with the same wife, but he did have 10 more kids, 
he had double of all the animals and possessions at that point because that's how they measured wealth back in that day is how many animals you had instead of how much money you had. And apparently his daughters were the most beautiful women in the land. And after this, it says, after this, he lived 140 years. It doesn't say he lived to be 140 years. It says, after all of this, he lived 140 more years. So we don't know how old he was when he died, because we don't know how old he was when we started. But I can safely assume that he's at least 40 years old, maybe. So I would say rough estimate he was between 180 to 200 years old when he died. So he got to see all the way to four generations past him. So that's pretty good. And Job lived a happy life up until the end. So very interesting and beautiful way to close the story of Job, which leads us into the Psalms, which which are the hymns of the Bible. There are 150 psalms that are considered canon of the Bible. There are some that try to add other psalms that, oh, there's lost psalms or hidden psalms, or these were left out, the church doesn't want you to know it. Well, they're left out on purpose because they don't match the Word of God. So it's important to understand the 150 that are in here are in here for a reason. Now, of the 150, almost half were written by David. Almost half. 73 to be exact. We read about a man named Asaph, who was the leader of the singers in David's day. He wrote 12 of them. The Korhites, which are part of the line of the Levites, they wrote 12 of them. Solomon wrote at least two of them. Moses, we know, wrote one, and there's a man named Ethan that wrote one. But the rest of them, we don't really know who wrote them. We There's some that will hint at being David, and there's a couple that hint at being Moses, but we don't know for sure, because there's no claim of authorship on them. Now, a lot of these psalms could be a whole sermon in themselves, so I'm not going to a, a try and to evaluate every single piece of all these psalms, but I will give some highlights that at least I feel are important to mention. So Psalm 1 is a beautiful psalm, and this is certainly one that if you're going to memorize scripture, this is an excellent one to start learning, because this is one that is so true as to the path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. So we see a progression here with the godly man at the beginning, right? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the council, does not stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. We see a digression, right? We see him first walking with God, and then they're standing, and now they're sitting. So we see them losing ground, right? But instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And what is the law of the Lord? We're talking about this, the Bible. And in his law, he meditates day and night. 
This isn't the first time we read something like that, right? Wasn't that what it, God talked about with Joshua at the beginning of Joshua chapter 1? It's like, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then you will have success, right? It talks about that. So this is the same understanding that if you meditate on the law of the Lord every day where it is consuming you, and this is where some people say, well, that's too much. Well, no, it's not, because this is the authority of our lives right here. This is the only book we need. I am not claiming today that I have mastered this by any means, but the intention of this is to where we know the Bible very well. We have, we're fully accustomed to it, we're fully familiar with it, and we know Scripture backwards and forwards. That is what God wants us to do. Because we see in other parts of Scripture, the Word of God is also described as the sword of the Spirit. Our weapons of warfare, our main weapon of warfare, is the Bible. And this is the one thing that grounds us to true reality, as well as to the nature of God and what He wants from us. So, you want to know the will of God? Read the Bible. You want to know how to pray? Read the Bible. You want to know how to deal with situations in life? Read the Bible. Everything you need is all here in the Bible. It's the one book in the entire universe that has all the answers you need. Why wouldn't you want to read it? So, our delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law we meditate day and night. We think about it all the time. Think of the things above rather than on the earth below. And this is from above, so certainly we should be thinking about the Word. Because we will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which means we are not going to move when outside influences attack us. Think of a tree that's deeply rooted. When famine comes, when drought comes, my roots are deep, and it's not going to bother me. Wind isn't going to blow me over. You know, I can't be pushed over. I can't be easily moved by anything. I'm not going to lose my leaves and my branches. I'm going to be healthy despite the storms around me. Right? And that's the whole point. Is that if we are grounded in the Word of God and things happen to us, we're not going to defect. We're not going to lose heart. And we're not going to rebel against God in the process. Whatever we do, we will prosper if we are based in the Word of God. But yet, He does the opposite as well. He sees the other side of the coin. If we are not obeying the Word of God, and we're not giving it a priority, that we are likened to the wicked. They're like chaff, which, you know, if you're blowing on a dandelion, for example, and you just see all of the little white fluffs go away, imagine that being like chaff. The chaff just blows away in the wind. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That distinction that 
One will go to heaven, one will go to hell. And I love Psalm 2. It's one of my favorite psalms. Because you see the entire world going to war against God. The nations are in an uproar, and they're devising a vain thing. They're coming up with, they're plotting, they're planning something in rebellion to God. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. It's as if you can imagine a mountain or like a tall hill, right? And you see God's kingdom on top of that hill. And on the bottom of the mountain, all surrounding this hill, you have a massive army. A huge army of people from earth that are going up against God. And those are the ones that are not saved. Those are the your average non-believers. And there are billions of them on this planet, are there not? They're all devising vain things. Because if you do not follow the ways of God, you are against him. And by nature, we are children of wrath, we're told. And children of wrath do not care about the things of God. In fact, we are his enemies. So they take their stand, they plot together, they rally the troops to go against God. Who are the nations going to war against? According to this, it says they're going against the Lord and his anointed. Who is his anointed? Well, in my Bible, it has a capital A to give you a hint. This is Jesus Christ. They are going up against the Lord the Father and against his Son, Christ. And they're saying this, Tear their fetters apart, cast their cords away from us. We don't want God to control us. We want to be autonomous from him. We don't want to have anything to do with God as if they could injure him, right? And he just sits in heaven, and he laughs at them. He simply laughs, because there is nothing that they can do to him. There is nothing in his creation that can affect him, either good or bad. He's immovable. He's immutable. There's nothing that can affect him at all. Our efforts to thwart his plans and to bring him down cannot happen. And it's just, it's all pointless and it's all meaningless to do so. So then he responds. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But what does he say? But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's how he scares them. That doesn't sound very scary at first, but what is he saying? You want to see why you should be afraid? I put Christ on the throne. He is the ruler of all the universe now. That is why you should fear, because he is the one who is coming as a warrior, and he will conquer this world when he returns, and everyone who is against him will be brought into judgment, and you will burn forever. That is your fear. There will be a day you will be held accountable, and you should be afraid for that day, unless you want to change sides and you want to join me. It even says that 
everything is going to be under Christ's feet. He's going to own everything. Everything will be his inheritance, and he shall break them with the rod of iron. And we'll see that language throughout the New Testament as well, and some other prophecies in the Old Testament, that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, and he will shatter wicked people like earthenware, like pots, like clay pots. So he gives them a warning. I warn you, kings, show discernment. Consider what you're doing, because I've, I take warning, judges of the earth, worship the Lord, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun, honor the sun, right? Because there will be a day that you're going to bow before him. Now, there's two ways that you're going to bow before him. You're either going to bow of your own free will, as you recognize him as your Lord, or he's going to force you to bow to him, right? Because isn't that what it says, that when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of the Father? There will be a day that you either get on your knees before God or he will put you on your knees and you will worship him before he sends you to hell. So either way, it will happen, whether with your cooperation or without it, but preferably with it. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. He is the one who keeps us safe, and he is the one who is for us. He's only against us if we are his enemies. But we as his believers are not his enemies anymore. We are saved from all that. We are heirs. We are inheritors of promises that are in the Bible. We got the same privileges as Jesus Christ in heaven. How wonderful is that? So I'm very much looking forward to going through the Psalms, as you can see. But that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.